Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis and, I'm, and I am an associate editor with the journal. Today our discussion is focused on uh, an original article, uh, Delivery Room Management uh, of Extremely Preterm Infants, the Epipage 2 study, and its associated uh, editorial, Delivery Room Practices for Extremely Preterm Infants, the Harms of the Gestational Age Label. Uh, and it's my uh, privilege uh, to have on the podcast with us today uh, one of the uh, authors of that editorial, and I will get her to introduce herself um, now. Hello, my name is Annie Janvier. I'm a neonatologist. I work in St. Justin in Montreal. I'm also a clinical ethicist and a research in empiric ethics. So I have a PhD in ethics, and my investigation is mainly on end of life and decision-making for premature babies and for other vulnerable patients. Dr. Yanvi, could you briefly uh, sort of summarize, as you see it, um, the, the findings of the um, EpiPage 2 study, um, delivery room management, extremely preterm infants, and how the evidence has evolved up to now? So the EpiPage 2 study is the follow-up of the EpiPage 1 study. And it's a very rigorous and very well-organized study, uh, very transparent. Um, and what they've looked at in the Epipage 2 study is the reported outcomes for all neonates born in the whole of France between 22 and 26 weeks of gestational age in 2011. So there were more than 2,000 neonates born during that period. And they didn't only look at babies who were admitted to the NICU or to a tertiary care delivery room. They actually looked at all of the babies that were born. Um, and their primary outcome for this specific article, because they have many different articles um, originating from this rich data source. Um, but the primary outcome of the article we discussed in our uh, editorial was the measure um, of the provision of life-sustaining intervention in the delivery room and their survival statistics. So they have examined their data of all these babies born in the whole of the country in a whole year, which is huge work, um, a lot of follow-up and extremely well done. And they've showed that over a year in France, only one baby born before 24 weeks of gestational age survived to neonatal intensive care discharge. And in fact, an ICU admission was withheld for a lot of babies at 22 weeks for virtually all babies, at 23 weeks also, but still at 24 weeks, more than a third of babies had an ICU admission withheld. And this still happened at 25 weeks, although it was more rare. But this data is not surprising because there's a policy of non-intervention for the smallest babies in France. And it's not the only country, there's more, there's, you know, more than six countries in the world that actually have policies based on gestational age, where gestational age is judged as futile before 24 weeks and inter intensive care is not given. Okay, that's a, a, a quite a comprehensive answer. Um, in, in the editorial, um, one of the most fascinating phrases that, that I think you used was that policies do not just reflect outcomes, they shape them. Um, could you expand on, on what you meant by that particular phrase? and really what the implications for for practice are for the sort of for the average neonatologist 
So how, when we look at outcomes, if I'm a neonatologist and I want to look at what the outcome is, for example, for babies born at 23 weeks, generally we go on PubMed and we try to find the answer, or we go on Medline, or we try to find the scientific evidence. The evidence will show me at the moment that survival is between 0% and 77%, depending on which article I open. Usually when the, we see these big variations in data, um, we're speaking about uh, the rich versus the poor countries, we're speaking about financial incentives, we're speaking about um, the ability to provide care or specific technologies that are in some units or not, or knowledge. But here it's essentially, the large variations are essentially due to philosophies. So the philosophies in one country is that these babies are better off dead. And in other countries is that perhaps we should try if parents want us to, to try knowing the outcomes and we should work together. And of course, when we ask parents, do you want us to intervene for your baby? And we have these conversations, which take a lot of time. We can have it in three ways. We can say there's nothing we can do for your baby. Uh, we'll provide palliative care, and I hate using nothing we can do, but often that's what is said uh, in these circumstances. In other places, we'll say, well, we can try. These, uh, this is our percentage of survival. And perhaps in other centers, people are more optimistic because they have better data and they say, usually we recommend intensive care. And of course, if you're a parent and you're met in the delivery room and a doctor tells you, well, you want to try to admit your baby and have life-sustaining interventions and our survival rate is 0%, you're more likely to say no. Um, and if somebody says it's 70% and this is what happens, you're more likely to say yes. Or if you say nobody survives or the majority survive. So data, our data and our philosophy actually reinforce our data. So if after five years you have no survivors, you say, well, intensive care doesn't work, everybody dies, you speak to parents in a pessimistic way and everybody continues dying. And on the other hand, there seems to be a positive vicious circle where if some survive and the outcome at 23, 24 and 25 weeks is similar um, and you speak to, to parents and you have a more positive attitude, informed consent is much different. So in some units, parents don't have a choice. They're told that these babies are, they will die. And in other units, parents have a choice, but our philosophies will shape our statistics. So, and this is true everywhere in the perinatal gray zone right now in neonatology. Hypoplastic left heart syndrome, surgery is generally not done in France. In other places in the States, it's 85% survival with actually good outcomes they're publishing their outcomes. And it's the same thing with babies who need dialysis. It's the same thing for intestinal transplant. It's the same thing for most of the gray zone data that we have right now in perinatology. And parents do not know this. So, so essentially, uh, from just to summarize, sort of, I think what you're saying is that a lot of the time our internal belief system or ideology informs our practice and ultimately if we don't if, if we say that we won't try then our outcomes will always be poor is that is that yes it's that our philosophy statement? actually our philosophy changes our statistics 
So the values of the doctors is what shapes the gray zone. So when when we say in in medicine that in the gray zone we we enter shared decision making, well, doctors make the gray zone. So doctors can decide something is futile and not offer intervention to parents, or they can decide something is in the gray zone. So intervention, for example, at 23, 24 weeks, or they can decide, decide it's beneficial. And right now for premature infants and a lot of babies in the gray zone with surgical anomalies, doctors have decided with their values, which feeds their numbers, which reinforce their values, where the futile zone the gray zone and the beneficial zone is. And inside these zones that the doctors have made with their values and their numbers, parents can decide. And just to be clear for everybody who's listening, when you talk about the gray zone, that probably has changed over the past number of years. Um, what, what do you consider the gray zone to, to be currently? Um, I can tell you what it is in different countries, but people decide with their values what the gray, gray zone is. So if I'm overgeneralizing how we take decisions in neonatology right now um, in intent, for intensive care and end-of-life decisions, some interventions are judged as beneficial, for example, giving surfactant to a baby at 30 weeks. And generally, we'll inform parents how this is done. And yes, we'll get their consent, but we will more get their assent and say, this is what we're doing and this is standard of care and it's beneficial to do this. On the other end of the spectrum for a baby born at 200 grams and 20 weeks, I'm exaggerating, everybody would agree that intervention for this baby would lead to death and that the intervention is physiologically futile, it wouldn't work. And then in the middle, there's a category of babies, and depending where you are, this the, it will shift depending on birth weight, depending on outcomes, and of weeks of gestational age in different countries, in different hospitals. They have different policies for where the gray zone is, where physicians and parents engage in shared decision-making of whether the provision of intensive care is in the best interest of that specific baby for these specific parents. Because for some parents, intervention at 22 or 23 weeks is not something that fits with their values. And with others, it is. But of course, the way we have these discussions with parents, the first step is to decide whether we will have the discussion. Because if we tell parents, we will intervene or your baby will die, they won't have any engagement in the decision making. And then when we decide that we have to have a decision with parents when there's in the gray zone. So the gray zone in my hospital is between 23, 22 and 24 weeks. In other hospitals, it's 25 and above in the rich countries. In others, it's 23, 24. So we see from the EpiPage 2 data that in France, before 24 weeks, parents are not generally not offered a choice for intervention. Just um, to, to move on the discussion just a little bit, um, you, you outline the arguments that are generally held for not intervening in the in the grey zone to use to use that expression. Could you outline some of those arguments and what the sort of the natural antithesis of those arguments would be? Well, the, there's generally three arguments that three categories of arguments that people invoke when saying that we shouldn't intervene for extremely preterm infants. 
Um, the first argument is that it's futile. Uh, it doesn't work. Um, the second is that it's more expensive. And the third um, is that, well, the survivors are disabled and the quality of life doesn't justify what we're doing to these babies. And in fact, if you look at the empirical data and the medical literature out there, none of these arguments are supported. So, for example, treatment for neonates born at 22 and 23 weeks is clearly not futile. What I mean by futile is physiologically futile are their survivors. Um, with interventions, you can see from empirical data that it's in some centers at 22 weeks, they're 20 to 30 percent survival. And at 23 weeks, you can have about 70 percent survival. So there is no other treatment out there with such survival rates or long-term outcomes that would be called futile for adults, yeah. um, for other conditions. The other argument invoked is the cost is, is disproportionate to the outcomes and is not justifiable. And in fact, many investigators have shown that NICU care is remarkably cost-effective and in fact more cost-effective than adult intensive care just for about any kind of thing we can do to adults. So, for example, Lex Doyle has shown that an ICU care costs less than $10,000 per quality adjusted life year, and that's a hundredth of what it costs for coronary care, for adult coronary care or cardiac care. So it's actually even more effective than routine pap smears or treatment of cyber, severe hypertension or coronary artery bypass surgery, all of the things that we judged in the literature that are a social good. Then for the, the disability argument, extremely preterm survivors, of course, they have higher rates of disabilities than neonates born at term. But that's not the relevant comparator if we look at comparing term to preterm. We should compare term to, for example, a 27-week baby or 26-week baby. And when we look, it's not really a reliable predictor if you're born at 24 versus 26 or 23 versus 26. Um, gestational age is really not the best uh, reliable comparative, what we should use to decide between life and death decisions. The other thing that's surprising is that in neonatology, we have rigorous investigations on the quality of life of survival with good follow-up data, up to 80 to 90% of survivors. And the children, their families, and everybody in the family judge that these children have a quality of life that is similar to babies born term with the same functional outcomes in terms of working, getting married, going to school, um, and things that are important for, uh, for adults. So none of these three big category of arguments works for a population of baby. Of course, there are some 24-week babies and 25-week babies who are going to be infected, uh, growth-restricted, have big brain bleeds, that this will not apply to them. But overall, as a category of individual, of persons, um, we can't use these three arguments. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. You mentioned in that answer that gestational age perhaps wasn't the best tool to use. Um, what is the best tool to use in terms of, of predicting um, or or deciding which babies we should it should it should intervene for, if for want of a slightly less crude expression? 
Well, for life and death decisions, it's very complicated. <laughs> so you know, it's very hard for me to come with a simple answer. In fact, it's not simple. If I had to decide to get brain surgery for a cancer, or I had yeah. to decide at 80 years old whether I want dialysis, or all these discussions about life or death with potential survival and death and disability and potential severe disabilities are difficult. And I don't know why in neonatology we want a simple rule or to punch in three numbers and come up with uh, resuscitate, don't resuscitate, or give the option to parents. I think it's reasonable to speak about these things as if they were very complicated. And so gestational age, most people who will listen to me will know that there's a lot of other things that are important. The weight of the baby, the gender of the baby, uh, whether the mom received, the woman received prenatal series, if the baby's infected, if it's a twin pregnancy. Um, where the baby's born will also influence um, intensive care. If it's an outborn or an inborn patient, perhaps you can't fly the mom to a tertiary care center, and that's also different. Um, so all these factors should should be together there, but I think it's also the parents' values and honest conversations about what's most important to the parents, what scares them the most, for them to speak about their baby, what's the name of their baby, what do they, what were they thinking, and what are they thinking about these specific choices in their life, and we can help them with their values take these kind of decisions. Okay, thank you um, for answering that sort of very clumsy question of mine. Um, the one of, one of the other statements I find quite fascinating, um, especially working in a working in a perinatal centre um, as I do, um, that the outcomes of babies in of all babies um, tend to be affected by whether you are working in a non-interventionist or interventionist setting. Can, can you offer an explanation of, of why that about why that might be? So why in a non-interventionist setting you have worse outcomes for all yes. babies or for specific babies? For, for all extremely preterm babies. Oh, for all extremely preterm babies. That's actually interesting. Um, the EXPRESS trial has shown that, and the Danes have shown that too. And, I mean, it's a good, Epipage 2 is a good example of this. Despite selecting the best quote-unquote patients, so those who are less IUGRs than the strongest babies, their survival are very average, even for the best babies or the beneficial babies. I'm putting quotes again. Um, so at 25 and 24 weeks, when they try, their survival is extremely average compared to other good centers. Why is this so? I think it's also a question of philosophies and perhaps in centers that are good, babies have x-rays quicker or if you have a hundred babies that are less than 27 weeks in your unit in a year versus 40, perhaps you're better at putting small IV lines, recognizes sepsis quicker, treating sepsis quicker. Um, and that's actually have been shown in other complex care settings, such as heart surgeries in, in older patients. So if you do more, you become better as a healthcare team. So I think there's a proficiency in how good we are as a team in, med in the medical sense. But I think too, there's another thing that is just the overall philosophy of the center. So if you're in a center, when I rounded in the center, 
of Edward Bell, who was one of the authors of the New England Journal of Medicine of Variations at less than 26 weeks. And there were 23, 22 and 23 weekers in there, quite a bit more than in my center, because we give palliative care to some of these, these infants. What he told me really resonated. It, he, I said, how do you do it to have this high survival at 22 weeks? He's one of the centers with the highest survival in the world and the better outcomes. Um, and he said, you know, we expect them all to live. And when they don't live, we look at what we've done wrong and we have to correct this. And what I look and I see in my center is when we admit a 22 or a 23 weeker baby, a baby born at these gestational ages, and they die when we discuss them at mortality morbidity rounds as well. We shouldn't beat it, you know, our backs too much because most of these babies die and they're meant to die. So it's just how they will die and not if they will die. And we don't take their deaths as seriously because they're so common as in other centers where they're so uncommon or more uncommon where they want all of them to survive. So this attitude of pessimism, and of course they're gonna die anyways, also doesn't help. We're probably more inclined to stop life-sustaining intervention or to be pessimistic whenever a baby has uh, has a glitch in his course. So I think there's, there's the medical care team that is better when there's a high flow, but there's also the attitudes that goes with it. Okay, thank you. Um, I just have one final final question, um, and and that's really, again for the for the practical neonatologist, and perhaps for uh, her or his obstetric colleagues, how can we start to improve the outcomes of babies that are due to be born at the the border uh, the border of viability? Well, the first thing I think is to have your data, and. I, that's what Epipage has done beautifully, is to actually show your your values in terms of numbers and what, ha how, what happens. The other way is to have a team, um, the second step, I guess, is to have the team sit together, the obstetrics and neonates together, and examine the outcomes with humility and curiosity. It's it's actually quite hard to, to say, well, where are, where are we... Where could we be better and how could we be better and who does it better than us and why did they do it better than us and what do they do? Um, how can we improve, for example, better methasone given to mothers and how can we improve mothers delivering in a, a tertiary care center instead of the primary care center? So there's examining the data and then implementing change. I guess you can implement it at, at a level of a unit, but it also needs to be at a systems level. So they've done that with Epicure, shown that if mothers deliver in the tertiary care centers, there's better outcomes comparing Epicure 2 to Epicure 1. And this is, for example, what could be done. There's still, I see in the Epipatch 2 studies, many 24-weekers who don't have prenatal betamethasone, and that's not normal we can get much higher numbers, but it's not the individual neonatologist, but as a group, they can do changes. And perhaps the best change is not to take life and death decisions in any country based on gestational age, to make this actually something complicated and not easy, as complicated as it is for families. Uh, Dr. Yami, thank you very much for, I think, a very engaging discussion. Uh, and thank you to you all for, for listening. Um, as always, you can engage with the, the podcast uh, content by using the app uh, 
ADC underscore FN Twitter handle and also my Twitter handle at Jonathan underscore Davis. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, I think, for a really engaging conversation. And um, and we look forward to, to, to the papers um, uh, sort of having a, a longer life and creating a more discussion on how we improve the outcomes of, of babies born at the borderline of viability. Thank you very much. Thank you.